Has the mute been hit? There we are. The mute was on. Good morning, everybody. I'm afraid you got me again. Sorry. I'm sure you can get over it. This morning, we're going to continue our series on the book of Ephesians. We're working over 14 separate Sundays. We're going to work our way through the book of Ephesians and then finish on an overview of the church in Ephesus themselves, their life history, if you, if you like, in light of what we've already learnt on the 14th one. So we've had two Sundays worth with John and then Julian taking us through the two halves of chapter one of the letter to the Ephesians. And the whole reason we're going through this picture, we just felt it was really important just to remind ourselves of what the bigger picture is. It's what we call this series, the bigger picture. And the, the letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago is fairly, pretty much a baby church, it's a few years old. He's explaining to them the bigger picture. And as much as we can get sucked into the details in church, Valid, valid things in terms of what church should look like, in terms of leadership, worship style, what mission really is, the gifts and so on. These are all valid, valid things. But we can get so sucked into the detail, we can actually miss the fact that there is a big story going on of which all of this plays a part. And that's why we're looking at the bigger picture here. In the same way, I went to art college nearly, well, over 20 years ago now. <coughs> feel old. Well, while I was there, just in the first week, one of the first lessons I had was in one, in one of the fine art classes. And there was an art teacher called David. And I've never forgotten this. He said, he, he set up a, there was a, um, like a biology class skeleton hanging on a frame. There was a big coil of really thick rope. There was a table and there was a vase and there was a chair and there, I think there was a hat and other bits and pieces. And he just asked us just to sketch the scene. And after about half an hour, an hour, I was, lo- I was loving the rope. It was great. These little strands that are all woven together and then these big strands are then spiralled into this massive piece of rope. Really big, chunky marine rope. It's lovely stuff. And I was really enjoying kind of the geometry. I loved kind of drawing intricate patterns when I doodle. And so getting into this rope, drawing the geometry of it, I loved it. It was fantastic. And I got this little tap on my shoulder. I go, Steve, what are you doing? It's like, the rope. It's brilliant. He's going, well, the rope looks nice, but in context of the whole thing, it's not in the right place. It's the wrong size, it won't fit. I took a step back. Oops. Rope was nice, rope looked lovely, I was quite proud of that. Rope still got it at home in my loft. Not the rope, the picture. <laughs> but, yeah, I love that. But I've missed the point that until I've sketched the bigger picture where everything gets its rightful size and its rightful place, you can then concentrate on the detail. And that's what we're doing here as we go through this letter to the book, uh, to, the, uh, to the church in Ephesus. So John and Julian have taken us through, they walked us through chapter one, which is hot in here. Is it? Is everyone hot? Yeah. yeah? Maybe we can, if someone can turn down the heating in a minute. If you're sweating, I want to keep you awake. Chapter one, John and Julian walked us through chapter one, which primarily focuses on our possessions in Christ, what we have in Christ. The great blessings we have, the Holy Spirit, the glorious inheritance in the saints and so on, and what that really means. That's chapter one, more about the possessions. Chapter two, Paul now shifts the gear and he changes his perspective and he explains our position in Christ. Chapter one is our possessions in Christ. Chapter two is more about our position in Christ, which John will continue in a couple of weeks' time. So I'm going to look at chapter two of the letter to the Ephesians. It's about halfway through the New Testament and uh, the first ten verses, if you're able to find it, if you're not already there. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to ten. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live 
when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. <coughs> Excuse me. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, as we unlock what this passage really means, as we pick apart some of the lingo and really get to the bottom of what Paul's saying here, Lord, may you just open our eyes to it once again. Lord, we can grasp this is exciting, but we don't always truly get it. Lord, help us. So Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our heart that we might see the true glory of what's going on, what's at stake here, what it means to us whether we believe in you or not. Those of us in this room, open our eyes to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever read a classical piece of literature and wondered what all the fuss was about? Shakespeare at school. Oh, my life. I mean, I enjoyed watching the films that they then showed, Macbeth and Julius Caesar, stuff like that. It was all right, but trying to read through that language, it just, it just came across as so dull for me, really. And I, but I, I enjoyed it because I was told I was meant to, and it's good, and it's classical, and it's important, and it's historical, and therefore we meant to enjoy it. So, yes, Shakespeare's brilliant. <laughs> but in the same way, I mean, just recently I've read Paradise Lost by Milton, uh, John Milton, and I was only reading it because they've been planning to make a big Hollywood movie of it, mega budget, that's now fallen through. But I was getting all excited about this big army of angels led by Jesus throwing Satan out of hell and to see it on the big screen at Westwood Cross. Brilliant. So I thought, I'll read the book, find out what the story's about. And oh my life, does John Milton go on? Flipping it. It's a classic. He's well, so many hundreds of years old, but flipping it, the language. I just could not get into it. And I struggled and I struggled and struggled. I made my way through it, but the only time it really clicked for me was when I went online and found an overview of what was really going on. And, parag- and chapter by chapter, it would give you a quick paragraph synopsis of what was really happening. The Archangel Michael is now telling Adam what will happen with the flood. And, and, and the Archangel Michael is, is with Jesus and they're chucking Satan out and he turns into a snake and he has he's a whisper with Eve. He's like, oh, right, now I get it. And then I was able to step back, understand what I was reading, and I really quite enjoyed it by the end of it. But without that help to really understand the big picture again, the lingo I just found was just too dense. And in some ways, Paul here is throwing out so much lingo. It's because it's he's doing it quickly. He's trying to get onto something else. He's trying to explain our position in terms of Jews and non-Jews later on that John will unpick for us. But in so doing, we can read this and we can think, this is amazing. This is exciting. You know, all these, all these phrases, like you're dead in your sins and there's the ruler of the kingdom of the air and we followed him and gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, we were by nature objects of wrath. We're now seated in the heavenly realms. We're his workmanship. Brilliant. don't really know what it means, but it sounds exciting. And we can get this, but actually fail to realise the true profundity of what's happening, really grasp what's going on. So hopefully, that's what we're going to do today. That's the plan. But this, just these ten verses, Paul paints a picture, if you like, a bigger picture. He's actually almost telling a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. The first three verses, verses one to three, he explains where we are 
as a human race without Christ. He's saying, without him you are dead. Full stop, you're dead. In the middle, verses 4 and 5, he tells us what Christ has done for those of us that believe. He made us alive in Christ. You were dead, now you're alive through Jesus. And then the final few verses, verses 6 to 10, he takes his big run-up and he explains this grand finale of where we stand in Christ, who we are in him for eternity. We are his workmanship. He leads up to this final verse where he explains where his workmanship, which I find very exciting and you'll find out why at the end. I love that word. <coughs> so, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. You were di- dead, you're now alive, you're now created to be his workmanship. Let's look at the beginning. The bad news. It starts with the bad news, doesn't it? Do you want the bad news first or the good news first? Bad news, build up to the good news. That's what Paul does. He says, verse 1, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. He's saying, because we're alive, aren't we? We're breathing. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. saying you are spiritually dead in your sins. So a physically dead body is unable to respond to the paramedics on scene, to the funeral staff in the funeral parlour. They're unable to have an appetite for food, they're unable to hear or speak, to respond in any way. And in the same way, spiritually dead people can't respond to God in a spiritual way of themselves or even please God of themselves in the same way. Without him, we are on a slab, we are cold, we are lifeless and we've got a tag on our toe. That's what the Bible's saying. But then, how does that work? Because people still seem to find God. I found God, you find God. How did that work? If we were dead and we couldn't respond, how did that happen? It does fit. Paul goes on to explain a little bit more of why we're dead in Christ in the letter to the Romans. don't have to look it up. I've got the verses here. But Romans chapter 6, another letter that Paul himself wrote to another church over in Rome. Ephesus was in Turkey. He wrote to the church in Rome as well. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he says, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. See, sin simply means anything that falls short of God's perfect standard. None of us are going to achieve that, are we? No matter how hard we try. (laughs) It's perfect standard. Sin is anything that falls short of that. And death, here, is talking about separation. As much as physical death separates our loved one from us, in the same way spiritual death separates us from God. And through our sin, and you cannot tolerate imperfection simply because he's perfect, not because he's nasty, he just, he's perfect, and if he tolerated imperfection, he wouldn't be perfect. So being perfect, he can't tolerate sin, and it, and it brings a separation. It brings this great chasm between us and God. Ever since sin entered the world through the first human beings, through Adam and Eve, we as mankind have been separated from God by our sin. The penalty for our imperfections is separation forever. Being spiritually dead. So well, that, how's that fair? So Adam and Eve sinned, and I'm separated from God. I wasn't there, was I? I was born in 1971. It was a little bit later. So what's going on? Again, Paul, in that same letter, the uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 5, he says, Sin entered the world through one man. Sin entered the world through Adam. Which then led to death as a consequence. The penalty for death is separation. A penalty for sin, sorry, is separation from God. And that death came to all men because all sinned. He's saying it there, Adam sinned, so we all sinned. He represented us as a human race. Actually, we are sinners by inheritance. And this is proven in life as well. We all bear the consequences of Adam's sin. Because even King David, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, King David, 
couple of thousand years ago, said, surely I was sinful when? From birth. Actually, he then backtracks. He goes, surely I was sinful from birth. I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Just think about that. There's an embryo, there's a fetus in the womb that's still considered sinful. Even though it hasn't acted sinfully yet, it hasn't done a sin, it hasn't cheated or lied or stolen or murdered, still a sinner by inheritance in our spiritual DNA that we've received from our father Adam. Does that make sense? So even in the womb, we are spiritually dead. We are DOA. Before we've even entered this world, we are dead on arrival. It's quite sobering, isn't it? I mean, have you, have you... Here we go. This is how the inheritance proves itself. Have you ever taught a child how to be naughty? Could be quite fun, actually. No, 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 no. Have you ever had to teach a child to be good? Yes. It proves itself. You see, a dog acts like a dog because it's got a dog's nature. So if I take a cat's nature and put it in the dog, it will act very differently. It'll act all aloof and treat you like a member of staff. Won't it? But in the same way, we are sinners and we act like sinners because we're already sinners. You don't need to teach a child to be naughty. They do it out of their nature. And we have to teach them and discipline them to learn otherwise. This doesn't remove our responsibility. Well, I only, I only sin because I'm a sinner, so I can't really help it. We do have a choice to make. There's still responsibility as well. So dead or alive, it's black or white really, isn't it? You can't be a little bit dead. I've met plenty of dead bodies in my life as a paramedic and they're either dead or they're not. You can't be a little bit dead. One body can't be more dead than another. In the same way, a homeless man living in squalor without Christ and an entrepreneur living in absolute luxury without Christ, they're just as dead as each other. Same thing. But you might be thinking, well, I've not, I've not acted. I've not acted dead and I've done good things and I've helped people. So why should I be condemned for that? I try and lead, lead a good life. What's the difference? Well, for starters, would you like me to have a look at your bank statement and your diary and your internet history and, a, have a, if it's possible, have a transcript of all your thoughts? Would you really want me to read everything you've ever thought? We're not perfect, are we? But in the same way, actually, even regardless of that, even the good things we do are still tainted by sin. Paul, again, in the letter to the Romans, that letter keeps popping up, Romans chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, God allows people to do good. Even those who aren't Christians, those who don't believe in him, he still allows them to do good. And some amazing things have been done in this world for the benefit of mankind through people who aren't Christians. God allows that. Imagine the world without that, if he didn't allow that. If we're all just acting from our sinful nature. <laughs> it's quite fierce, isn't it? But unless those acts honour him as number one, it's not an act of worship, it's not recognising him as number one, and actually, it's sin. Sin is anything that falls short of his perfect standard, and his perfect standard is that I'm the king, recognise that, everything else flows from that. So Paul has already told us we're dead in our sin, there's nothing we can do about it, and he says that we've lived as such, like a dog acting like a dog because it's a dog. We are sinful by nature. We're also sinful by action as well. And then he goes on to say, verses 2 and 3, you were dead in your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. 
So he's talking to Christians now. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, he's referring to the devil. The devil is still very real, still whispers in our ear, still tempts us. Again, doesn't absolve responsibility and we still choose to sin whether the devil's involved or not. But just need to recognise he's active. The spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. See, we've been ruled by what we desire, by our emotions. We've been tempted by the lust of the world around us, like food and sex and stuff. Require more possessions, get more money. I'll be happy when I get more money. And we get swayed by the devil and his minions whispering in your ear as well. Did God really say that? Is there really a God? Do you, you have rights? Whispers that in our head, don't I? Go on, one more fix. Whatever that might be. This is how every human being has existed by default. From Adam to Cleopatra to Elizabeth I to Einstein to Mother Teresa to Lady Gaga to you and to me. All of us entering this world have acted this way. And there's a consequence to that. Right at the end of verse 3, I left that sentence out. Here we go. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. There's that word we don't like. And some people try and explain away. We were by nature objects of wrath. How can a God of love be a God of wrath? It's a tricky one, isn't it? The Bible talks about wrath a lot. talks about God's wrath a lot. And this should be less surprising than it is often taken. Many people struggle with it, and I understand why. But simply speaking, God, if God being perfect, therefore standing for all that is good and upright, and anything less so is sin, he has to hate everything that opposes that. Does that make sense? If he's perfectly good, anything that isn't good, he, he has to hate. He can't have anything to do with, because then he'd stop being perfect. His wrath simply means his hatred of sin hates it and he's allowed to hate it because he's good right at the beginning of the story of mankind in Genesis chapter 6 it says this is, you see, see what's going on in God's heart it says the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain he looked on the race he'd made, the earth he'd made for it, the universe he'd made for it, and he looked at us, and his heart was filled with pain. Can you feel that? Because he hates sin. He hates our selfishness. We as, hum- as human beings, we get grieved when we see something that confronts our values and our standards. When we read in the papers or we hear about a child that's been abused, I get angry, really angry. I hate it. And when people groups get downtrodden and they lose their voice, and we hear what's going on in the Middle East or other countries, people getting executed for their faith, I get angry. And when individuals or governments, they take what isn't rightfully theirs, we get angry, really angry, and we hate it. It's the same for God. God has every right to have that sense of justice, more so because he's God. If we who are imperfect feel that way about evil, imagine how he feels about evil. His hatred of sin, his wrath, is actually a truth worth being thankful for because it proves how good he is. Do you get that? Because you see, it's not just our sin 
that we need saving from. We talk about being saved from our sins. There is an element of that, and yes, we're trapped in this cycle of I keep returning to doing what I don't want to do, and I don't like these things I do, but well, I do really like it, that's why I keep going back to it, but ultimately when I've done it, I feel really bad, and I don't like it, and I get caught in this cycle of sin. We need saving from that, but actually we need saving from the consequences of it as well, from God's wrath. He needs to deal with it. He's a perfect God, he's a perfect judge, he has a great sense of justice, more so than we could ever imagine, and he has to deal with it because he's good. That's what we need saving from. The consequences to sin, the wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual separation for eternity from God unless anything happens. An eternal separation from all that is good, the Bible calls hell. And it is real. And it is scary. And it is frightening. I don't want to be there forever. I don't want to be separated from all that is good forever. Does anybody want that? Scary, but it's real and the Bible talks about it. And there's one person who talked about hell more than anyone else and that was Jesus because he's serious about it. Hell is eternal separation from all that's good and it's real and it's what we deserve because of our sin. So that's us stuff then, isn't it? <laughs> Great. Thanks, Steve. We're well and truly dead and we're unable to do anything about it. Bad news. Is there any good news? Yeah. But. Verse 4. I love this word. But. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. But God. It's been described as the greatest phrase in the history of human speech. It's the biggest but in the world. And I love it. God didn't have to do anything. But he did. Why? As it says here, because of his great love for us. It's not for anything we've deserved. It's not for anything we've done. All our acts without his help are tainted by sin. So it's not for anything we've done. It's only because of his love for us that there's any hope for us. Only because of him we can be saved from being dead. He loved us regardless of our sin. He loved us regardless, but he couldn't disregard it. He's had to do something about it as well. So how does he save us? And how does he deal with the deserved punishment of eternal separation from him at the same time? Isn't that impossible? Not for God. Not for a loving God. Let's read those two verses, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. There's something far greater than love. I love things. I love films. I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love my house. I love you guys. I love Herne Bay. And I like DVDs again. I like them in. I really like, I really like DVDs. <laughs> Blu-rays, yeah. I love these things. But love... There's different expressions of love. My love for my films is very different to my love for my wife. And my love for my daughter is very different to my love for you guys, and that's nothing personal. But you see, there's different understandings of the word love. So what's going on here when it says love? What's really meant by love? Paul explains at the end of verse 5, it's by grace you've been saved. It's love in a whole new way. Grace means love that pays a price. That's a whole new realm, isn't it? Love that pays a price. The eternal Son of God 
dared to be a man amongst us and to live the perfect life that we can't live because we're sinners. He never sinned. He was tried in our eyes, our sinful eyes. We thought we knew better and we tried and sentenced him to death. We, the human race, his own people that he created. And he suffered that agonising death on a cross. If you want to know what death on a cross is like, come and speak to me later. I'll fill you in with the details. It's grim. It's not just hanging up with some nails through your hands. What it does to you is crushing and absolute agony. It's where the word excruciating comes from. Horrible. And he went that, went through that with joy because we were on his heart. He bore our sin in that moment. He didn't just bear the pain on our behalf. He bore the consequences of God's wrath. God's hatred of sin was poured on him because he bore my sin at that time. Because he wanted to. Because he loved me and his love was willing to pay a price for me. Hanging on that cross, it was my selfishness, it was my lust, it was my greed, it was my bad-mouthing, and on the list goes. He was that for me. He bore that for me. And he did the same for you. He willingly bore that hatred and that punishment that we deserve from his own Father. Love that pays a price. It's mind-blowing. God did that. And he wanted to. See, the demands of God's perfect justice are huge because he's so far, in his goodness, he's so far removed from us. Therefore, his justice demands, it's huge, it's a huge demand. But his love was so willing and so great and so able to meet that demand in such a way that he was willing to pay a price, he was willing to meet that demand at his own expense. His own son, who he loved, who he'd never been apart from, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, eternal, never began. And he's willing to pour that out on his own son. He died that you might live. We can live because in him we find that wrath diverted and in him we find our only hope. And because he rose again on the third day, a historical fact, I want to talk about that, come and find me later, it is. And so he has conquered sin and death once and for all. He conquered sin on the cross once and for all. And he rose again, conquering death, once and for all. For you and for me. That's available to all of us. Trusting in this truth is the only hope that we have of not remaining dead, being a dead body, you can't respond of yourself. It's only by his grace, by his goodness. We're lost without hope in our dead self. But if you place your past, your present and your future in his hands as Lord of your life, you will be saved. And there's no other way. We can't save ourselves. Dead bodies can't do anything. Dead bodies can't save themselves. You can't rely on other people to do it for you. They're dead as well. See, bodies don't know they're dead, do they? A few times in my career, I've done nearly 20 years as a paramedic, and a few times I've had to deal with someone where they've died in front of me. And there's one guy I've never forgotten. We got him into the ambulance... He was just feeling genuinely unwell. We sat him on the trolley. I'm just swing your legs up. Okay, yeah, off he goes. And just rest your head back. Okay, and he goes, Hello? He's ignoring me now. He's being rude. Hello? He's dead. Thought it was carotid pulse. It was nothing. Just like that. He'd just literally been talking to him a couple of seconds before. Gone. So we do things slightly differently now, but at the time we didn't have hydraulic trolleys. So I could actually flip a lever and the back would, where he was sitting up would fall down really quickly. You can't do that anymore. But in such a way, you can actually do that as a little trick to restart the heart. 
So he, he, he's got, oi. So I flick the back of it, flip down, bang. And he wakes up and he opens his eyes. And he goes, I'm feeling a bit better now. I don't think I'll go. Can I stay at home? I was like, do you realise what's just happened? He's like, well, I feel better. It's like you just died. Dead bodies don't know they're dead. So how can dead bodies respond and try and save themselves? You can't. You need your eyes opened. You need the life given by the giver of life. He, Jesus, the giver of life, is effectively walking through the graveyard saying to bodies that can't do anything, come alive. Come alive. He's doing it today in Herne Bay. He's done it for me. He's walking through the graveyard saying to bodies, come alive. I've done it for you. I've paid the price for your sin on the cross. I rose again on the third day that you might live. Come alive. He does it. It's real. But only because he does. We can't do anything of ourselves. We are all dead on arrival, unable to respond unless Jesus, the giver of life, breathes that new life into us. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He still is. If this is new for you, is a chance to respond. Is he talking to you? Can you hear his voice? He's made it possible for you to respond. Does any of this resonate with you? Because here's an opportunity to not pass it by if you don't already know him as your Lord. This is the historical Jesus of Nazareth who was born 2,000 years ago. He's in other historical accounts besides the Bible. It's not just people making it up. He's a historical man. He's recorded as having died on a cross. And then historians get confused because they realise his body's missing and his friends are saying he's alive. And as a result, the church has come alive across the world, made a massive difference, got it wrong sometimes. But the church, there's no explanation for the church today without a significant moment 2,000 years ago where it began in Jerusalem. This is real. And that was the Son of God dying for you, that you might not be dead, but that you might be alive. So that's the beginning and the middle. Once you were dead, and if you believe in him, you are now alive. Does it stop there? That'd be all right, wouldn't it? We're saved, we're not alive anymore, it's pretty cool. And then we just carry on bumbling along until we get to heaven. No. Of course not. God's got greater plans. The bigger picture doesn't stop there. Paul describes what's happened to us and what is happening to those of us that have been saved. We're now no longer the walking dead, but we're launched into a new life, into authority and adventure, and part of his great plan for this planet. Verses 6 through to 10, Paul takes us through this big sweeping grand finale of what's really going on here. We're saved for a purpose. Here we go, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, heavenly realms, is that phrase again? What does it really mean? It means we get to share in his authority here on earth. We're his emissaries, his ambassadors here on earth. We are seated with him as children of the royal family. He calls us brother and sister, children of the Father in heaven, and being members of the royal family, we represent that king here on earth. We get to share in that authority. We can command over the occult, over evil influence. We can see the sick healed. We can see broken families healed. We can see this town and this nation transformed for him, and he's using us to do that. He can do it without us, but he wants to use us. 
and because of our standing as his people on this planet, we can take authority. Matthew chapter 28 said, All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Baptise. He gives us his authority, passes it on to us as we represent him. And that's what it means by being seated in the heavenly realms. Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Incomparable riches. It's also mentioned in other translations. It's immeasurable riches. You'll never get to the end of them. Vast riches available to us are immeasurable. See, now, fortunately, we get eternity to marvel at what he's done. Because you're going to need eternity to get to the end of something that's unending, wouldn't you? It's pretty cool, huh? We get the chance to just search out what he's really prepared, what he's really done for us. Even now, reading through this chapter, I'm still only just getting some of it. And I've been a Christian since the age of 11. This life isn't long enough to really get to the bottom of what he's done for us, what he's doing in this world. We've got eternity to keep digging deeper and keep finding out and finding more joy and, and worshipping through that. Immeasurable. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. There is. He said it already in verse 5. He's saying it again because it's worth repeating. It's love that pays a price. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. See, this is a gift. Through faith, this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Again, he's reminding us. It's only because of him this has happened. The only reason you can be alive is because he chose to save you. Faith, the Bible expresses, is a gift of God. So it's not through me deciding, I've, I've, read, I've read all about Buddhism and I've read all about is, uh, Islam and I've read all about Confucianism and I've read all about atheism and I've read about Christianity and I've decided that Christianity makes more sense, therefore I'm a Christian and it was by my clever thinking and my logic and my reason that I'm saved. No. It's only because he's opened my eyes to him to see the truth of who he is. I'm saved. It's all about him, not about me, not about us. And therefore, he gets the glory. Verse 9, we're not saved by works so that no one can boast. We're saved for works. He's got a job for us to do, which we'll find out in a minute. But we're not saved by works. You can't earn your way into heaven. Because remember, everything you do without him, without his help, is sin, which he needs to deal with. It's only through Jesus' work on the cross that we are saved. And here we go. The grand finale. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by good works or through them, but we are saved for them. We are his workmanship. I love this phrase. He's not saying, I am his workmanship and you are his workmanship. He's not even saying we are his workmanships. See, we, the church, are his workmanship together. It's not about a bunch of individuals doing our own thing. It's about us as his family. But then what does workmanship mean? I love this. Workmanship simply means the art of a craftsman. We're his work of art. There's a song that's just come out recently. It's put on the New Day album, part of our New Frontiers family. Uh, album coming out, and there's a song in there called We Are Yours. And in the second verse, it says, Now I'm alive in him, my life, his work of art. Have you ever viewed your life as his work of art? It's a great way of looking at it. When you look back and see what he's done for you, what he's done through you, 
how he's changed you, how he's helped you grow. Actually, when you start looking at how everything fits in place, you can see it's a work of art. It's amazing. But this is a collective work of art. It's not just about you. We, together, are his great big picture. We are made for beauty. We are made for enjoyment. We are made for a purpose. There's a reason behind it all. So the Mona Lisa, I don't think she's the prettiest girl, to be honest. It's like me and Shakespeare. A bit of a heretic, aren't I? But I can appreciate it's quite a remarkable painting. She might have been pretty at the time. But old Lisa, lover, she is renowned across the world, revered across the world, adored across the world. She gets 1,500 visitors per hour, every day. Amazing. Who gets the ultimate glory, Lisa or Leonardo? Ultimately, it comes down to the painter. She didn't paint herself. She didn't make herself. Talk about the picture, not Lisa. The painting did not create itself. The creator did. And as much as a picture can be beautiful and it stirs emotion and it brings great joy and pleasure, ultimately, it's the artist who gets the glory, not the image. He made that. And in the same way, we as the church, we are the people of God, saved by the power of God, for the purposes of God. We, we demonstrate his bigger picture. We're his work of art. Transformed, made anew, living lives in a different way that bring glory to him, that is beautiful to watch, even if the world don't get it. But actually we're making a difference in the world as well. Even in this country, health and education, the abolishment of slavery, it's all through the church. If we allow him to work through us, we make a difference that really does benefit mankind, not just in good works, but in such a beautiful way that transforms society for his glory. He's the artist behind it all. And these works he's prepared beforehand, even while we were dead. <laughs> oh, Before I was even saved, he had stuff planned for me for when I am saved that would be part of his bigger picture. He had me, me on his mind then, and I didn't know anything about it. I was dead. Even while we were dead, he was working on our behalf. Are you realising your place in the bigger picture? Do you know where your place is in the bigger picture? Are you letting him use you? Do you know what your gifts are? Do you have dreams that you feel might be from God? Do you want to work them out? Talk to us. We're happy to help you. We can pray through and work it out. We've all got a part to play. We've been talking about it recently, about the gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about character and about gifts and about being used as part of his bigger plans. We can help you. And actually there's a cell question on the notes ready for this week for the small groups to discuss, work out what that can look like in this town. You can dream big dreams. Just a quick reminder of this bigger picture, this story. All of us are DOA on this planet, dead on arrival. All of us are separated from the perfect God by our imperfections. All of us are at the mercy and subject of his hatred of sin. None of us get a get-out clause. We're all dead and unable to do anything about it. Stuffed. But God. But God makes life available through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. Grace is love that pays a price. He and his son willingly agreed. Jesus was sent, but he also volunteered. 
Grace is love that pays a price. God raises us up to share in his kingly riches as his children, members of the royal family. We get to represent that here on earth to be the means of transforming this world. The church has a purpose in this world. It can sound arrogant to many, but it's what the Bible says. He's making a difference in this world through us, his people. But God has created us for good works, not by them, and his saved people are his work of art. You want to know what the bigger picture is? Look at his intentions for his people, because we're his work of art. We screw it up. We get it wrong, don't we? As individuals and as the church. So we're still capable of sinning. We're still capable of doing our own thing. We're still capable of thinking we know better. We're still attracted by... We don't have a sinful nature anymore. We've made new in him, but we're still attracted by old habits and old obsessions, old ways of thinking, old lusts. The world still has an influence on us, and we need to be careful. But when we let him work through us, we truly demonstrate his work of art he's got for us. If you've trusted in Jesus as your only hope for eternal life and you're no longer living that dead existence for yourself or for others or for things, if you're now living for him as Lord, then don't squander that gift. Run with it. Let him work through you. See the difference it will make. Or if you've not, can I just beg you, listen for his voice. Listen. He's speaking. And I believe he's speaking to some of you now. You just feel that a sense of something in your spirit. There's just there's something real here, and I can't put my finger on it. But as much as I try and fill my life with things I like and people I like, and avoiding people I don't like, and avoiding things I don't like, and just trying to fill my life with things that will make me happy, there's still an emptiness. If that's you, there is something that can fill that emptiness, and that's Him. I believe He's speaking to you right now. And. Uh, Please come and find me afterwards and love to talk it through with you, pray through with you. But if you don't know Jesus, please don't miss this opportunity to find out more about who he is. This is real. This is what life's all about. And he is a good God who loves you, who gave himself for you, who paid a price for you. He gave himself that you might be saved, no longer dead but alive in him, created to be his beautiful work of art. Let's just pray and we're going to sing a song. Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus, you <laughs> we can't big you up enough. God, you prove yourself over and over and over again. As we look around on life and we see things that, that don't quite fit, we see the inadequacies of the stuff around us, Lord, we recognise that only you are the answer. Time and time again, you show yourself to be what it's all about. Time and time again, you show yourself to be the only hope. Time and time again, you prove to us that we are lost without you. Lord, time and time again, for us as your people who are already saved, we still get it wrong and we still try and, excuse me, still try and earn your favour. We still try and, and win you over sometimes by the things we do and the things we avoid. And we're missing the point that it's all about you anyway. It's not about the things we do or don't. It's about who we are in you, what you've done for us. And out of that comes what we do or don't. Lord, help us. Keep opening our eyes to this. Keep provoking us, keep speaking to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, then please open their eyes, stir in them. Don't let them leave this place without coming to speak to one of us. God, you're amazing. We just want to glorify you.
And as we sing this last song, might truly be from a heart, a heart of worship because of who you are and what you have done for us and what you are doing through us. It's all about you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you like to stand?